Welcome to Earth Matters on Gila Members Community Radio, KURU at 89.1 FM. I'm Donna Stevens, your host for today's program and the Executive Director of the Upper Gila Watershed Alliance, a local nonprofit working to protect the Gila watershed through advocacy, education, and restoration. You may have noticed that Earth Matters was on break for a few months and that during that time we rebroadcast shows from the archives. While we were on break, we decided on a slightly new focus for the program. Climate change is here and New Mexico is feeling its effects. What can we do to draw down our climate change and carbon emissions, restore our land and water, and adapt to harsher, more challenging conditions? The Gila Resources Information Project and the Upper Gila Watershed Alliance have relaunched Earth Matters now. It's a bi-weekly podcast that will help you understand how New Mexicans and others in the Southwest are rising to the climate challenge and how you can too. Each hour-long episode will bring to you conversations with people working on the ground to address climate change in the Southwest and provide you with information on how you can make a difference and help bring collective action to this global crisis. Allison Civic and myself, Donna Stevens, are your hosts for Earth Matters, airing every Tuesday and Sunday at 10 a.m. on Gila Members Community Radio. This year is our 10th anniversary. On today's show, I'm talking with attorney Cindy Toole, who is the Arizona and New Mexico Director of Western Watersheds Project, a nonprofit that works on grazing issues on public lands in the West. Commercial livestock grazing is the largest use of public lands in national forests and Bureau of Land Management land. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you, Donna. I'm very glad to be here talking to you today. Good. I want to start today's show by just sharing a, an experience that I had last summer that made me realize that there's a lot of misunderstanding about grazing. So what happened was that I was camping with my family, and we were in southern Wyoming, and we had just arrived at our campsite on Bureau of Land Management land. There were cattle grazing in our campground, and one of my family members said that they weren't supposed to be there. His thought was that because we were on public land, the cows were trespassing from private land. Cindy, can you talk about how public lands grazing works, what lands are available for grazing, and how widespread it is? Sure. Um, And, you know, Donna, your experience isn't uncommon at all, Um, though it can often be unpleasant and sometimes even dangerous to have livestock everywhere we try to go on, on Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management lands. The unpleasantness comes from seeing damaged native plants, especially grasses or riparian vegetation like willows and cottonwoods that are eaten by livestock, and also from the sight of cow pies littering campsites, streams, and trails. Um, The danger to the public from livestock grazing is because the cows and bulls might actually charge you, especially if they're with their calves. Um, They can block your path on a trail. They can degrade trails with their hoofs and make them dangerous to hike. And the cow pies in and around the streams and ponds and lakes can also contribute to uh, bacterial E. coli contamination. And this presents a significant health risk to the public, especially children. Um, E. coli contaminates the water in our lakes and streams, meaning it's unsafe for us to drink. Um, And sometimes the level of contamination can get so high, it's even unsafe to touch the water. Um, 
<clears throat> the danger and unpleasantness can happen just about anywhere on publicly managed lands. And this is because livestock grazing, as you said earlier, it's ubiquitous. It occurs on nearly all federally managed public lands, and there are very few exceptions. Some of those exceptions can be found on wildlife refuges uh, or some national parks. And there's a few areas of Forest Service and BLM managed lands where, and BLM is Bureau of Land Management, um, where the impacts of grazing have been determined to be too harmful to continue. Though this is extremely rare and the vast majority of federally managed public lands are open to livestock grazing. And I think most people don't understand that. Um, Grazing is allowed nearly everywhere because federally managed public lands are supposed to be managed for multiple uses and sustained yield. And that simply means we're trying to squeeze as many uses onto and out of our publicly held lands, while at the same time, we're supposed to be trying not to impair them for future generations. Um, This means that livestock grazing can be authorized just about anywhere you have lands managed by the Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management, and it's authorized often from management plans for those Forest Service units or BLM districts uh, from plans that were developed decades ago. Sometimes they can be 20, almost 30 years old. These grazing authorizations are broken into what the federal land managers call allotments, And that's a specific area usually tied to a parcel of private property or some sort of water right that a person or more commonly a corporation is allowed to graze. Um, And they're allowed to graze a specific number of livestock for a certain period of time. Most often in the Southwest, it's year round, um, especially on Bureau of Land Management managed lands. A person who wants to graze livestock will submit an application to the land management agency And then the agency does a really cursory look at whether or not they're qualified, whether they can or they're capable of grazing livestock, and whether they hold the land or water um, necessary to support that livestock. Then they'll, after this really cursory look, they'll usually grant the permit for a period of 10 years. Um, And then after that permit expires, it generally gets renewed again and again for additional 10-year period of time uh, with very little review of the impacts that livestock grazing is having on natural resources and almost never looking at the impacts on recreational users. Um, These renewals, without really any hard look at the impacts, are done often through what is called the grazing rider, and that's a provision of federal law called the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, specifically at Section 402C2. We call it the 402C2 rider or grazing rider. And as long as the land manager is going to just authorize the same permit, the same number of cows in the same time of year in the same area, they can do that with just the, a stroke of the pen. There's no need to look at it um, at all further. Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER, and Western Watersheds Project, we both released maps uh, of these grazing allotments throughout the West, and they show how often these grazing riders are used and how degraded these livestock allotments are, as well as how infrequently land managers are looking at those those allotments. So it doesn't really even matter um, how dry it is. Uh, the, the grazing permit just gets renewed. Yeah, that's true. Um, There are many areas in the southwest New Mexico, but more in Arizona, where we have experienced severe and extreme drought. And um, sometimes permittees will reduce the number of livestock on the land temporarily, 
but the permits and the authorization for the number of cows don't change. Okay. So, Cindy, you work with a nonprofit organization called Western Watersheds Project. Is your group concerned with grazing on private lands or only on public lands? It's uh, really funny you asked me this question. Just today, our organization posted on social media um, pointing out that private lands ranching is beyond Western Watershed Project's scope of work. We are largely concerned with the impacts of livestock grazing on federally managed lands, but we also try to keep tabs on what's happening on state trust lands. Um, those are lands in each state that are managed for trust beneficiaries, usually uh, K through 12 elementary through high school students uh, for school funding. Um, they're usually widely grazed if they're not sold for development. And we found that most state land departments are doing a really poor job of protecting state lands from livestock grazing impacts, as are many federal land managers. Yeah, so I just want to clarify for our listeners what we're talking about when we talk about federal land. So we're talking about national forests, right? And also, like you said, um, BLM or Bureau of Land Management land. And, and one other thing that I think is a common misconception is about grazing in wilderness areas. Can you talk about that just briefly? Is that permissible? Yeah, I think a lot of people believe that wilderness areas are protected from livestock grazing, but the great compromise of the Wilderness Act of 1964 was that it basically endorsed livestock grazing in these areas that should otherwise be free from the permanent influence of humans. And, you know, when humans are grazing livestock, we are having a significant impact on wilderness areas. Um, there are a few wilderness areas, including in the Gila National Forest, that are off limits to livestock grazing, but that is the exception um, more than the rule. And more often than not, livestock grazing is allowed. And land managers will say that the Wilderness Act actually prohibits them from ending livestock grazing, which isn't actually true, but that's the position that they often take. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Um, we, you know, this is an hour show, so we're going to have plenty of time to talk about the impacts of livestock grazing. But I wonder if you can just give our listeners a brief overview of the reasons why conservationists are really concerned about livestock grazing on public lands. And then we can talk about these concerns in more depth later in the show. Sure. Um, so the impacts of livestock grazing are many, and they are extremely well documented by the scientific community and well known by land managers. Uh, these impacts include the removal of native plants that livestock like to eat, as well as the spread of invasive plants that people like to introduce to feed livestock. There are certain types of grasses that get introduced to feed them. And livestock also transport invasive species of plants in their fur and in their hooves and in their dung. Um, the invasive plants often outcompete native plants, especially when the native plants are preferred by livestock and the invasive plants brought in to feed the livestock aren't as delicious uh, to those cows. That reduces the habitat quality for the wildlife that are um, depending on those native plants for survival, and it can increase fire risks, um, which maybe we can talk about a little bit later. Um, livestock also trample stream banks. They remove bankside vegetation. That's going to increase the water temperature. It's going to allow more sedimentation into the stream. That harms native fish and aquatic insects. Uh, species such as the mountain meadow jumping mouse, which depends on riparian areas and riparian vegetation for survival, can be displaced when livestock destroy those riparian areas by crushing those banks and eating the vegetation that the mouse depends on. Um, livestock can also be really disruptive 
because they displace native ungulates like bighorn sheep, pronghorn, deer, and elk, and because they compete with the same food and water and space on the land. Um, another impact is ranchers often demand that state and federal agencies manage predators to protect their livestock. That means mountain lions, bears, and wolves, and other animals are killed in order to ensure the survival of livestock that are left alone on these really huge allotments that can often be tens or even hundreds of thousands of acres in remote places. Uh, often livestock are calving year-round, which native ungulates don't do, and that makes those cows easy prey when native prey species might be in short supply. So that's just a short list, and I haven't even mentioned the impacts of wells and stock tanks and fences or livestock grazing infrastructure that dries up springs, creeks, and streams, and fragment habitat making it harder for wildlife to move. Um, the fences cause entanglement of ungulates, and they can even cause a de decapitation of low-fine birds. Yeah, uh, that's quite a list, and we can talk about some of those in more depth. I wanted to ask you also really briefly before we take a break, what impact cattle have on threatened and endangered species? Yeah, they are tremendously harmful to threatened and endangered species because in the Southwest, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, many of our threatened and endangered species live in and near water, either in springs, streams, rivers, ponds, or lakes, and in those riparian areas near those waters. Native fish, reptiles, plants, mammals, birds, and insects all are dependent on those riparian areas, which are increase, increasingly rare. Um, as most folks know, we have lost about 98% of the riparian areas in the Southwest over the last century. That's due in part to drought, but also because of grazing impacts and other water-related uses, including surface and groundwater withdrawals for industrial, agriculture, and residential uses, and mining. Um, that means that the places where wildlife are trying to make a living, these threatened and endangered species, um, those places are shrinking. And um, to make it worse, the dry deserts and dry forests of the Southwest, in these areas, the livestock are drawn to those riparian areas. And it's nearly impossible to keep a thirsty mama cow out of a stream when it's the only water available for miles around. Yeah, that's true. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more. We'll be right back on Earth Matters on KURU 89.1 FM after this short break. We'll be continuing our discussion with Cindy Toole about public lands, livestock grazing. Don't go away. <laughs> 